This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, February the 16th, 2020. Don Dickinson discusses unionizing efforts by some Starbucks employees in a preview of Voices of the Walrus. And this one is going to be some changes for you in terms of support on external drivers. Stephen Scott is going to explain how that's going to impact users in his Double Tap segment. But first, here is the regional news update. Beginning in British Columbia, BC Premier David Eby has announced new policies that slow old-growth forest logging in the province. 2.1 million hectares of forest will have logging deferred. Eby reflected on the importance of these forests. They're a source of beauty and of good jobs for communities that rely on them. They're one of the many reasons our province is such a special place to live. And we owe it to future generations to protect them. I want to make sure that these majestic trees are there for my kids and their kids uh, and for our climate. The province had previously deferred logging on 1.7 million hectares of forest. Over to the prairies, the city of Regina has outlined a plan to cut almost $3 million from its budget. A new report says the biggest savings are expected to come from operational cuts, including civic fleet maintenance. The plan also includes a 25% reduction in travel and training budgets and a 20% cut in spending for consultants. Bad news for Dave Brown Consulting. Mayor Sandra Masters says the city will continue to work with staff to search for other ways to cut costs. And in Ontario, Toronto Mayor John Tory has formally submitted his resignation letter. Tory submitted the letter shortly after his budget was approved by City Council yesterday. Tory had pledged to see the budget through before stepping down. And I want to thank members from across the council uh, for working together to get this budget to the point where approval uh, is imminent. It's been far and away the toughest budget that I've experienced uh, working on on this one for almost a year and and it's uh, the ninth one that I've worked on. Tory's resignation is effective Friday. He says he'll spend the next two days working with Deputy Mayor Jennifer McKelvey and city staff to ensure an orderly transition. And finally, in the Atlantic provinces, New Brunswick... New Brunswick's latest fiscal update is forecasting a surplus this year because of a tax windfall. The province's third quarter update projects a surplus of $862.6 million. Finance Minister Ernie Steves says the surplus was driven by stronger than anticipated economic and population growth. The province also announced a $300 million investment to establish the New Brunswick Advantage Savings Fund. Earnings from this new fund will be used to fund various programs with the interest earned. It's estimated the fund will generate about $13 million a year annually for various investments, and those will include things like affordable housing, innovation and health, and education. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, I've got to confess, this first story on your radar went right by me yesterday, but it looks like the Oakland A's are destined for a relocation. Yes, it does. And it's funny because just at the end of that last segment, you were talking about, uh, you know, putting some bets in in Vegas. Well, now you have another reason to possibly go to Las Vegas, and that is to see the (laughs) Oakland A's play baseball. So uh, they're... Lease ends in uh, 2023 at the Oakland Coliseum, um, which means that at that point, it um, looks like they're going to be moving. Having said that, um, it seems that the biggest bone of contention with the city and the team of Oakland was that they wanted to build a new stadium. Well, the city didn't seem to want to bite on that, so now the owner has said well we'll just move and uh that seems to be the way it is and oakland's never really been a great place for uh 
baseball. They have this huge, oh, giant easy, stadium. easy, easy. The the team's been brutal for 25 years, <laughs> and the stadium's horrible. Like it, like they've won World Series, Brock. It was once a wonderful place that supported their baseball team. Oh, as of recently. Okay, there you go. Well, sec- that there you go. Clarification. As of recently, that is. Had not been the case, and and it's just it's I guess it's just time for them to move on, and it's too bad because you know Oakland's lost a few professional teams in the last few years, and this is another one on the list. Brock, it it actually stuns me because Oakland is not the city that it was thirty or forty years ago, which was sometimes seen as the poverty-stricken brother of San Francisco, right across the uh, bridge. Oakland is one of the wealthiest cities and one of the most expensive cities to live in in the United States, that whole Bay Area. And the idea that they've lost the Raiders a couple of years ago to Las Vegas and now the A's to Las Vegas really says to me now, like that there's, there's something amiss in the way that those organizations are being run. But I do want to I'll put my foot down firmly here. Public money should never go to financing private sports stadiums, should never go to no. financing private sports stadiums. It should go towards health care and disability supports and a million other important things that are not building uh, building stadiums for billionaires who can afford to build their own stadiums but I will say this that that said the, the fact that I feel bad for some people in Oakland who've lost their basketball teams uh, their, their their sports teams even the, uh, the the Golden State Warriors used to play in Oakland they now play in San Francisco so they've even lost their 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 basketball team to the other side of the bridge to San Francisco as, as sort of a, a, a note to point in there I will say Brock though I am excited for another team to be making their way to Las Vegas. Now that the stigma around sports gambling has changed, and because the NHL was the first people through the wall to put a team in Vegas through roaring, roaring success with the Las Vegas Golden Knights, I am delighted to see more professional sports teams making their way into Las Vegas. Yeah, I, I think it, it's going to become one of the, another one of those meccas of sports uh, worlds and the way it is. I just want to make a remark to what you said about, you know, publicly funded dollars going to uh, stadiums and that they shouldn't. I th- I think that this is this is one of those cases where newsflash, not everyone in the public is sports fans, even though us as sports fans, you know, sit there and think that everyone should love sports. <laughs> That's not necessarily true in society. Uh, and you're right. There's millions and millions and millions of dollars that could go to uh, more, more, you know, important things, as you point out, than, than productive was the word I was looking for. Productive things than putting a stadium. So, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly on on your comment there. This does break my heart a little bit, though, because Montreal was one of the cities that was talked about being a potential Oakland A's destination uh, if they did get relocated. So this obviously factors Montreal out of that. So that bums me out. Just a little bummed out there. Got to give a little Expos love, a little love for uh, Nozamor here, the real national baseball team in Canada that no longer exists. Uh, Brock, speaking of the national baseball team that does exist, the Toronto Blue Jays spring training essentially underway it kind of snuck up on me how fast they got down there to Dunedin Florida and spring training being underway just a couple days away from the first spring training training baseball games it's delightful I am I uh, delightful is the theme of this sports report so far but the Blue Jays specifically Vladimir Guerrero Jr. talking about how the team this year wants to focus on fundamentals fundamentals and the simple things was the word he used and when I think of this, here's what I think of. I think of better positioning, more accurate movements, better throws, better decision making. Uh, and it, it just, these are the things that they need to do. Also, recognizing the fact that people who play their positions, you need to understand who who runs each field. Like, have a better understanding of leave the center fielder alone, leave the shortstop alone, let them dictate who's where and shifts and all this. These are the things that I want to see better with the Toronto Blue Jays this year when we talk about fundamentals. And more accurate throwing to first base specifically because I am so tired of watching Vladimir Guerrero stretch like Gumby over there at first base. (laughs) And I think, oh, your hamstring, your hamstring, this is not good. So I think it's just the overall better uh, decision making and I think you know, it goes from top to bottom, but these are the fundamental things that I can sort of think about 
off the top. And I'm wondering if you're thinking of other fundamental things that I have not mentioned or or maybe you want to add to what I have mentioned as well. I don't know. It kind of sounds boring. It kind of sounds like management wants to choke the life out of this team that was so entertaining and so energetic for a couple of years. That a couple of years there, bringing in Donnie Baseball, Don Mattingly, noted boring manager, bringing in boring players like Kevin Kermeyer and Brandon Belt, just saying, "Oh, we're going to be one of these boring baseball teams." Trading away the guys who used to dance in the dugout and getting rid of the home run jacket. I don't know, Brock. I kind of feel that this is an overreaction to getting the doors blown off by Seattle kind of shockingly in the wildcard round last year and Seattle, a team that does play very unfun, boring, fundamental baseball, who then proceeded to get knocked out by a more talented team in the next round in the Houston Astros. I, I Brock, I just feel like the Blue Jays are singing this tune to appease like the 75-year-old white guy in the stands <laughs> rather than being like, how about we be a fun baseball team that's enjoyable to watch? Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. I think for me, I've kind of been caught in the middle of this, you know, home run jacket sort of thing. There's a part of me that likes the little, you know, the gimmick. And then there's the other part that goes, okay, maybe maybe it's a bit much. I do think when you suck the life out of a team as they have, you know, done, it seems, when you don't have fun playing sports, it is challenging over a hundred and, you know, 62 game season to 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 get yourself going and and the way that you get yourself going is having a little bit of fun so i am very afraid that the fun has also been sucked out of this team and what are we going to see as a product of that and i think they believe oh this is going to turn into wins it might but it might be also a as you point out very boring brand of baseball. <laughs> Although when they win a World Series, it'll be super exciting. So you know, like let, yeah. let that that's the thing. You want to make you want to push your chips in and talk about playing a more boring traditional standard brand of baseball, you better win. Like like that that's yeah. fundamentally yeah. it. If you want to take away the entertainment, you better win because that's one of the great contradictions that exists in per, in professional sports. It's okay to be boring if you win, but if you're boring and you're mediocre, then you are nothing. Yeah, and that's that's the risk we take. And again, I'm going to be cliche here on this and say there is only one team that, that does win every season and every championship and all that. So you do have to, when you push your chips in, you have to say you either win or you don't. And yeah. again, going back to Toronto, Toronto is one of those meccas where it's like, you win, we're all on board. You lose, we're just going to be, <laughs> oh, fire John Snyder, fire yeah. this person. You know, Ross Adkins, you know, that's it's just going to be a life of disastrous <laughs> proportions if the Toronto Blue Jays don't do what they should. Because for the last, I'd say, four years, we've expected more out of this team and we haven't got as much out of this team as we've expected. So yeah. you've now changed the tone. Now you, we better see something a bit different here. Absolutely. Although when they do lose, I like to buy my cheap tickets in the 500 level and eat my $1 hot dogs. So, you know, if they lose a little bit, it doesn't bother me. Uh, Brock, let's uh, jump over to the NHL, the trade deadline. It's still a few weeks away, March the 3rd, but there's no reason that you and I can't look ahead a little bit here, especially because the rumor mill is starting to heat up. But this all starts with um, the rumor mill heating up in a way that really annoys you as a sports journalist and sports fan. It's and and again, I am gonna tell this audience I am a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs, but as a reporter, I am beginning to see things that it's like, why are we doing what we're doing? And I saw the most ridiculous thing the other day, and I don't understand why this was posted. The thing that I saw was the following: it said the Toronto Maple Leafs will make a trade at the trade deadline. <laughs> End of statement. There was no, there was no rumor, no, no nothing with this particular, with this particular post. It was just a newsflash of, hey, we're going to make a trade and, you know, enjoy it. And it's like, why do the, we really the sun, like The sun will set tonight. The ice will be cold when they skate upon it. Yeah, like, did we really need to point that out that on March the 3rd, there's going to be a trade by the draw? Like, really? Like, give me something to work with here. Like... Man, alive. Only in Toronto would that happen. So, like, 
<laughs> so, so Brock, as we sit here today, and no need to get too in-depth on this, I think over the course of the next couple of weeks, you and I can really dive much deeper into hockey. Now, the football's done, baseball's heating up, but I think it's time for us to really start grappling with hockey. But So no need to dive too, too deep into this. But as of this morning, where we sit, three Canadian teams are in playoff spots. Toronto, Edmonton, and Winnipeg, with Calgary just on the outside looking in in the Western Conference. Brock, if you were to think about any of these teams making a big acquisition or a big splash at the trade deadline, who do you think it would be? Uh, you know, I, I got to be honest. I think Winnipeg is the most underrated yes. Canadian team out there. Yes. I honestly think they're going to make some kind of splash. I don't know what it will be. Maybe it's Taves. Maybe it's Kane. May, you know, someone like someone like that is going to go over there. I, I really think, you know, Winnipeg is going to say, hey, we actually have something here. You know, the media has left us alone for a while and we're just kind of lingering. You and I have talked about it kind of on a casual front over the last little bit, but but it's really true that Winnipeg just continues to be kind of under the radar and I really believe they're going to make a push because they've proven, listen, we're a good team and we deserve to be on the map here. Yeah, you think about bounce back seasons, their goaltender Connor Hellebuck back into fine form looking like a Vesna candidate for best goaltender in the league. Pierre-Luc Dubois after struggling after arriving there from a trade with Columbus a few years ago, has absolutely found his game. Nikolai Ellers, back from injury, already producing well offensively. Mark Scheifele, one of the best offensive players in the league, putting up points. There's really something going on right now in Winnipeg that, that as you say, is going under the radar because they suffer from an East Coast and West Coast bias because they're stuck right there in the middle of the country. But yeah, I, I would love to see the Jets do something fun at the deadline. Like you say, John Taves, Patrick Kane something like that, maybe bolstering the defense somehow. I think there's really something they could do there that's so, so exciting. Okay, Brock, let's leave it there for today. We'll catch up with you again tomorrow. Have a great day. Enjoy lots of cool sports on TV, and uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow morning. We will indeed. That is Brock Richardson, the host of The Neutral Zone at the AMI Sports Desk. Alex Smythe is at the AMI Weather Desk. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, snow is changing to rain around noon today. There's up to four millimeters expected to fall. The high is three degrees. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's cloudy with possible rain in the morning. Then it's gonna be clearing up near noon and the high for the day is eight degrees. To St. John, New Brunswick, it's cloudy becoming a mix of sun and clouds later on in the day, and the high is 10 degrees. To Quebec City, Quebec, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of rain in the morning. There's also wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour, and the high is three degrees. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of rain this afternoon, and the high of two degrees. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of snow this morning, the high is minus six, but with the wind chill, it feels like minus 15. In Brandon, Manitoba, it is sunny. It's a high of minus 15, but feeling like minus 36 with the wind chill. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's a mix of sun and clouds. The high is minus nine, but again, really bitter with that wind chill. It makes it feel like minus 34. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's sunny becoming a mix of sun and clouds later on in the afternoon. There's also wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is five degrees, but feeling a bit cooler at minus nine with the wind chill. In Red Deer, Alberta, it is sunny and becoming a mix of sun and clouds in the morning. The high is four degrees, but the wind chill makes it feel like minus 14. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, it is a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of snow in the morning. The high is minus seven, feeling like minus 15 with that wind chill. The Kelowna, BC, it's cloudy and a high of three degrees. In Vancouver, BC, it is cloudy with rain expected later on in the day. The high is six degrees. And that's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Alex, isn't it funny when it's minus 35 with the wind chill in Toronto, it becomes a national news story on CBC News and CTV News. But, you know, it's an average Thursday in Regina, minus 35 with the wind chill. Oh, what are you going to do? Yeah, well, and, and that's the thing, Dave. You know, it's like, it's, it's funny when you see how the prairie provinces and, and it starts to creep west. Like, there, there was an 
invisible wall, it seems, you know, right around Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta. It's like, oh, well, you know, Calgary's still dealing five degrees and stuff like that. Why didn't it happen when I was out in Edmonton no. living there? I mean, I got those minus 35s, those minus 40s every single day in January and into February. I'm not getting these like minus fours, uh, minus threes. I could deal with that. Yeah, that would have been easy. We're like a month from spring, buddy. It's all uphill from here. Alex, thanks for this. Yeah, not a problem, Dave. Coming up after the break, a technology story that warrants some examination and exploration. Dropbox users on Mac OS, so Apple users, are going to be dealing with some support and service issues, especially when it comes to external drives. That sounds really buzzy and confusing. Stephen Scott of Double Tap will explain. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. If you are a Dropbox user, that's the file sharing service, and also a Mac OS user, there's some support that's going to change here. It's going to make your user experience much different. Stephen Scott is one of the hosts of Double Tap and can offer you a few more details and perspective on this. Hey, good morning, Stephen. How are you? Good morning, Dave. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. So, Stephen, like this can get a little bit buzzy, a little bit confusing when we're talking about Dropbox and Mac OS and external drives. So paint the picture for me here. What exactly is changing for a Dropbox user on Mac OS? Well, this was a shocking story. It was shocking, Dave. I was shocking. shocked and horrified uh, at the news. Yes, it was disgraceful. Um, so here's the thing. If you, like you say, if you're a Dropbox user, if you're someone who uses the file sharing application, a cloud storage solution, which many people do, and it is a fantastic service that allows people to, you know, store their data into the cloud and make sure it's safe and backed up and out of the way. Uh, but equally, as you say, able to share uh, information as well. It can be a really useful service. But the problem these days is, that our amount of data we store is becoming quite large and you know even a general consumer can store a lot of data meaning that sometimes the hard drive that's on their computer just can't fit it all so what some people do is they buy what's called an external drive so maybe a hard drive that you buy out of Best Buy or you know, get it on Amazon or whatever and it's usually an external box that you plug into your computer via USB and then that allows you to add extra storage to your computer and up until recently, you were able to connect Dropbox to that external drive. So essentially what it means is you could have more of that storage available all the time instead of all the files always living online and say when you want to get to that important document or that audio file or that video file, you'd have to go off and download it first. It just made it easier because it was already there. It was mm -hmm. synced up with the cloud, meaning it was always safe and secure, should anything go wrong. but you didn't have to have the worry of your laptop complaining or your desktop computer complaining it'd run out of space every single time you downloaded something so that was the reason where uh, why people like that and and where we are up until now but the news that has come out has changed that so what's happened is apple have invoked some new fancy security and privacy features as they like to do and what that means is that most of us now who have dropbox accounts will not be able to use external drives, meaning that it has to be the case that all the data from Dropbox has to be stored on your computer's hard drive. And if you've got a small drive, that's going to cause a lot of people a lot of problems. Stephen, this is why you are an excellent professional broadcaster. You laid that out in a very succinct, understandable way. So what does this mean for almost any kind of external drive use on a macOS device? So, so in theory, if I store anything on this external drive, but I still have a Dropbox on my main hard drive, can I move something off that external drive onto my desktop or onto my onto my main hard drive and then dump it into Dropbox. Like, like, is there still going to be a way that a user can utilize Dropbox while also being a Mac OS user? Absolutely, and there are people who will never have a problem with this because their hard drive space may be enough. They may not have a huge Dropbox account, like the basic account is two gigabytes, so that's not a lot. No, Most no. hard drives <laughs> two will gigs. have more than enough. But 
But but these days, you're right. I mean, how many people are going to use that? They're going to have maybe a terabyte of space. Now, let's, let's just think about it in those kind of basic numbers, even if you don't understand what those mean. A typical hard drive in a laptop can be anywhere between 256 gigabytes and 512 gigabytes. Let's say you have 512 gigabytes of Dropbox storage. Well, there's no way you can store all that on your laptop hard drive, can you? Mm -hmm. Because you've mm -hmm. already got maybe 100, 200 gig on there already used up. So, you know, that's starting to fill. And then you've, you've got maybe 300 gig left. So it's not enough for that other 500 gig. Now, look, I will say you can obviously run everything still in the cloud. And that's something that's good about all this, actually. There's a good news story here because one thing Dropbox had an issue with with Mac was that you couldn't go to an online file and just open it like you used to be able to. When you tried to open it, it would tell you there was a problem. Uh, and actually, that was a nuisance as well because if, as you see, you go to the cloud, you, you kind of browse it almost like you would any other file structure on your computer. And then what happens is you, you go to that file, you say open, and it says, sorry, you can't do that. You have to go off and download it first and then open the file. So it was a bit of a nuisance. They fixed that. So that's the good news. So working with online files will be a little bit easier. Now, this all depends on a number of factors, how good your internet is and how much storage you have on your computer. Now, like right. you're saying, if I have a file on my ex external hard drive and I want to put it into Dropbox, the, question, the, the answer to the question is, do you have enough space left on your existing drive to do that. Right, That's right. ultimately the, the answer to that. So if it's a 300 gig file, you might just scrape it by, but if it's 400 gig, you've got a problem. Uh, now that's that essentially is where we're at. Now, look, I don't <laughs> want to put people off using Dropbox because obviously it's a great service. It still works. It will still do everything you want it to do. The issue here is where the files are stored locally on your computer. The amount of files you can store locally on your own hard drive is going to be determined now solely by the hard drive you have on your computer. You used to be able to use an external drive to, for that right. storage, which gave you so much more capability because a hard drive, you know, these days when you buy a laptop or a computer, often the, thick, the, the hard drive that's in there is fixed. You can't just go to a store and get it upgraded. They've, they've welded these parts in so you yeah, can't yeah. change it. And that's a big problem. So that's why people buy these external drives. And what, what's <laughs> happened here it's kind of caused a bit of a problem for some of the users. I mean, especially yeah. people who are like us. I mean, I have a 23 terabyte Dropbox account. What does that tell you? What's that going to say? <laughs> I, I think some terminology used there really matters, some users, because uh, I think unless yes. you work in TV and movie production, you're not oftentimes going to be moving files that are bigger than 200 gigabytes. Like, that's like the entire storage of my video game collection well, on my Xbox. Well, you say that. You say that, but in my iCloud account on my on my phone, I've got about 400 gigs worth of photos and videos that oh, have wow. just stored over time. You know, I, I, it's just I don't delete them. So they're just, they just build up over a period of time. Now, I, I don't have that many, but you imagine if you've got kids and you're constantly taking pictures, you're constantly taking yeah. videos, all that storage builds up. And you can, if you go into your iCloud account or you go into your uh, Google, uh, you know, on your Android phone and have a look at some of the data, you'll probably be quite surprised at how much cloud data you actually use. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so Stephen, let's say that at this point, Dropbox uh, doesn't become the easiest uh, program to use in the Apple atmosphere, in the Apple ecosystem. What are the alternatives for somebody who, who still wants that ease of file sharing? Well, this is the interesting question at the moment, because ultimately this is an Apple decision to add this privacy and security feature, meaning that these services have to use the onboard hard drive of the computer. Now that therefore you would think would suggest that applies to everything. So it doesn't matter what the service is, it will apply the same rules. We're yet to see if that's true because there are rumors floating around about perhaps Dropbox could do something to fix this themselves. Maybe there's a way it could be resolved. So there's still a little bit of flux into what is actually going on here and who will be impacted. Uh, certainly in my, in my experience, Microsoft OneDrive, which a lot of people might be aware of, you often get it when you subscribe to Microsoft Office. It's a mm -hmm. similar storage solution. Uh, that is something which at the moment you could, and at least as far as I'm aware, you never could actually connect to an external drive. It had to be again on the drive, which limited it and actually stopped me from using it as a serious solution because it just wasn't big enough. I never have a hard drive big enough for all my data. So it's not going to hold all that. Um, so for that reason, I, I, we ended up going down the Dropbox route. But I do think that there are lots of other options out there. Be very careful though, because of course what you're looking for is something that's safe and secure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is your data, right? So if it's home movies, if it's family pictures, you want to make sure they're in a secure place. So it's very tempting to just Google search, you know, top five storage solutions and, you know, find the top one that's the cheapest. 
But that's not always the best option. Uh, you know, I think that Microsoft, Google, Apple, they all have their own. Uh, Google has Google One, uh, Microsoft has OneDrive, and Apple, of course, has iCloud. So you may find there's a solution in there somewhere for you. Yeah. And hopefully a solution that works. Stephen, there, there's an ecosystem question here that certainly of the big tech behemoths, Apple has traditionally built a lot of moats around their tower to say, no, 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 we like to do our things on our own terms. I think you've seen that with certain yeah. apps being allowed in the App Store and certain apps not being allowed in the App Store. How much does an Apple user have to accept some of these realities when they decide to jump into that ecosystem? Well, funnily enough, I had some conversations on the show about this just as this news broke. And, you know, it's funny, that's the first thing that was said to me was, well, come on, it's Apple, what do you expect? And, and I suppose there is a little bit of acceptance that Apple just does change the rules. It does things it wants to do. This is a strange decision, though, because I don't really understand the reasoning behind it. I have a feeling this may change. I have a feeling something may come out of all of this coverage and, and someone may turn around and say, actually, let's maybe not do this because there's no real value to it, to be perfectly honest. It's not like anybody really wins out of it. Dropbox can certainly lose, and if it has an impact on their business, they may well want to take Apple to town on that one. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think the companies have more to lose than we do initially, uh, but these kind of changes are something you do get used to in the Apple world. I know you're a Google guy, so you know, it's all free and easy and peace and love over there. Oh, but, yeah. you know, for us, all it's a little bit more... Nothing nefarious, about, nothing nefarious about Google at all. It's all peace and love. No, it's all they're, great. Yeah. They're treating my data with the utmost respect. Uh, Stephen, <laughs> I don't want to reveal too much here, but uh, you're linking up with Mr. F here in a couple of days in Central Europe, so safe travels. Yes. Thank you. Yes, I'll tell you all about that next week, Dave. I cannot wait. Stephen, all the best to you, sir. Safe travels. Thanks, Dave. Take care. That's Stephen Scott, one of the hosts of Double Tap, which you can find daily, noon Eastern time, on AMI-audio or on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also find on your favorite podcasting platform and AMI-audio, The Pulse. Joita Gupta will be catching up with Tina Opalecki, the co-founder of Prosthetics for Foreign Donations. They'll share the journey as the experience of a black parent of an amputee. So... That's The Pulse, Thursdays, 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio, then available on your favorite podcasting platform, including YouTube. Coming up next, Alex Smythe asks the question, what makes for a good assistive device? We'll uh, share some thoughts in the roundtable chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The conversation around assistive devices continues. Alex Smythe has a question in the roundtable chat. Yeah, Dave. So this was something that kind of inspired me after hearing your conversation with uh, Liana uh, Genovese from Imaginable Solutions. So I wanted to ask the roundtable, what makes for a good assistive device? Is it the cost? Is it the function? Is it the simplicity? Is it the design or is it something else? So Ramya, why don't we start with you? What makes for a good assistive device? I think what makes for a great assistive device is whatever works fully for the person using it. So uh, I really enjoy myself something that is, you know, commercially brought to us that I can take my iPhone, use it as I need, and then hand it back hand it to somebody else and they could know what how to use it as well but really what i'm saying is if it works for you then it's a good assistive device yeah to me that boils down to functionality i think about two that i use not as frequently as i used to but still use quite a bit my magnifying glass and my telescope a magnifying glass is really comfortable on my left eye it blows up fonts perfectly and my singular uh, telescope is wonderful as a binocular to look at things that are far away they're super easy to use, and they serve a very clear function. And like you said, Ramya, I could hand them to anybody, and they'd figure them out inside about mm -hmm. 10 seconds. Uh, Nazreen, what about you? I'd have to say all of the above when it comes to function, oh, what a cop easy out. to use, what a cop out. design. It should be all of it. <laughs> I'm, I, I'd say easy to use for uh, is like the main, um, the main thing for it to be the best assistive device. Uh, for it to be just good for you and what you need it for, excuse me. Uh, okay, you're all taking very diplomatic answers here. Uh, Alex, you framed the question. <laughs> What's your answer? 
It's it's got to be simplicity. I, I appreciate the functionality and 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 cost. I'm not going to go all the above like Nizri, and I'm going to take a stance. I'm going to say simplicity wow. because the best assistive device for someone who is blind or partially sighted is still the white cane. It is literally a stick that we hold in front yes. of us and tap and move. It is as simple as simple can be, and yet it is so effective because it's simple. Yeah. For okay. real. I, I like that. Okay. I, I think I think ultimately, even though uh, we all copped out in our own individual ways in the way we answered that, <laughs> I, I, I do think that, yeah, function and simplicity really came down to sort of the two big themes there. And of course, like design exists in that and simplicity and cost tend to be interlinked together. So I made mention of my telescope and my magnifying glass. Those are probably my two most assistive devicey, assistive devices. But if you asked me, what is the most effective and useful assistive device in my arsenal. I'm gonna pick it up and hold it for you right now. It is my smartphone. It is mm -hmm. mainstream technology, but you can do almost anything you want. Like you can do almost anything in terms of the assistive device functions that I mentioned for you in terms of magnification and telescope with the camera on your smartphone. So I would argue the best assistive device right now on the market is a smartphone. Nazreen, what's your vote? I'd have to agree with you, but I'd say uh, also Zoom features on every device out there, whether it's a computer or a phone or anything like that. That's the most uh, accessibility feature that I use right now. Uh, but yeah. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Alex, going to you on this one next. What in your mind, you mentioned you mentioned that in terms of the device, it's the white cane, and I think you're not going to hear much debate about that. In fact, Ramya affirmed you. But what do you mm -hmm. think the best device is on the market right now? You know, I I'm, I thought of it from the perspective of something that is solely for an assistive purpose. So I would say, you know, a, a prosthesis. So whether it's a, a prosthetic leg or a prosthetic hand or arm, I think those restore functionality in a way that other devices, other tools just haven't been able to match. Ramya, you gave a big affirmation when Alex mentioned the white cane. So why don't you expand on that first and then I'll ask you what you think the best one on the market is. Absolutely, the white cane. Like if I'm thinking of a physical tool that has, it's it's timeless, it's been forever. There are versions of it everywhere around the world for blind and low vision people. It's got to be the mobility cane, the white cane. And that is, it's not going to change. You can add uh, tools to assist along with the white cane to make your experience, you know, more contemporary, uh, better, more encompassed. But the white cane stands for itself. It's just the most useful thing and mobility is one of the most important things to to feel independence and uh you know help in but i would also agree with you dave the smartphone specifically apps you know every kind of app out there that's now helping people seeing ai and uh ira and just using the camera as you mentioned but also ocr technology being able to identify images all of these wonderful things that kind of bring us closer to level playing field um and uh you know equality with the the, the able-bodied or the the sighted society makes me feel more included and that yeah. is all happening through my smartphone yeah i used to have to bring a magnifying glass to restaurants with me and now i don't i can just take a picture of the menu Pretty with much. my smartphone and zoom in and, and away i go i'm all good okay alex you got a great question here on this list of questions let's jump ahead to it we got to be quick here we got to be we got to move guys we can't steal don dickinson's time alex <laughs> if you could create an assistive device to fill a gap what would it be so I, I go back and forth on this. It would be one of two things. It would be one to help uh, people who are uh, who do not know ASL be able to translate and quickly sign and communicate with someone who is fully deaf because right now you still, for the most part, need an interpreter and intervener to be able to help translate ASL, remove that process, make it clean, or have some sort of wearable technology that can help navigate people who are blind, partially sighted in environments that is not clunky, it's functional, uses AI, uh, maps out environments for you so you help detect your environment. Yeah, indoor navigation. They've been trying to nice. crack that code for about seven or eight years yeah. now, and it looks like they're beginning to make some progress. They, I say they, there's a million companies working on it. Uh, Nizreen, you can fill any accessibility gap you want with an assistive device. What are you creating? What are you bringing to the market? Uh, I'd have to say something along with the wheelchair. It's just super hard um, when it comes to functionality with your arms and everything. So anything to help with that, that's. I think that would be my biggest uh, thing to bring 
up there because I have uh, I have uh, background in that. Like I do have experience in using the wheelchair, using it on my own, and it's really hard to function with that. All right, Nazarene wants in on the wheelchair business. You're all giving such earnest, great responses. The answer is a golf ball with GPS in it. A golf ball with GPS in it so I can golf independently. No Ramya, way. Ramya, what about you? <laughs> Yeah, that works. Uh, yeah, why didn't we think of that? Yeah. Um, I would say any kind of like remote access to know, you know how people use Street View to identify other places that they're not in and say, okay, this is what this looks like. This is what traveling around this area is going to feel like. I can't do that as a low vision person. So I want some kind of remote opportunity to let me know what navigation is going to feel like when I get to a particular oh. area before I get there before I have to do it in real life, in real time. I like that. So I was speaking about interior uh, navigation technology a few moments ago. Back in 2014, there was somebody working on 3D printing environments that it would be mm. it would be an organic, recreatable 3D environment where you could actually print like the floor of a subway station, print the, a tactile exactly. floor plan of a subway station. Um, think of like an aquarium where the wax would just fill into the aquarium and then you could feel it with your hands what the navigation would feel like. But I don't think they quite uh, were able to bring that one to market. But it sounds like Rumia is ready to be a, a venture capitalist on it. So uh, away we go. Alex, thank you. <laughs> Alex, thank you for bringing this topic. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Nazreen, thank you for your inputs. Thank you. Ramya, you did such a good job. That means you have to promote Kelly and Kelly and Ramya, which comes our way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV and AMI-audio. Why not? Uh, so I'm going to tell you that Michael Fair is telling us about notifications today. He's going to ta talk to us about how to optimize our notifications because they can be really helpful, but also a pain if you're trying to deal with them and there's too many coming through. Uh, so we're talking about that. Also, Mary Mamaliti is featuring olive oil. I'm not sure if she's going to talk about how good it is or how bad it is, but hopefully how good it is because I love it. Uh, and then we have Mark Phoenix, throwback from AMI. He's joining us on the roundtable. Right on. Mark Phoenix, back in the mix. Phoenix rising. Yeah. Uh, Ramya, I promise not to close the office door in your face today. Okay, well, I appreciate that. Okay, Thank all you. right, rock and roll. Yeah, I accidentally closed our office door yesterday and locked Ramya out. It was a little embarrassing. For good reasons. Uh, for good reasons. <laughs> Ramya, have a great day. I'll talk to you later. You too. That's Ramya Amethan, the co-host of Kelly and Ramya, which comes your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv and AMI-audio. Coming your way next is Don Dickinson with a discussion about unionizing efforts by some Starbucks employees. Don will have a preview of Voices of the Walrus. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. A First Nation in British Columbia is battling for land rights in the Supreme Court. They're paving the way for other Indigenous communities to follow. Here to tell you more is Don Dickinson. Don is the content curator for Voices of the Walrus. You can hear that program weekends at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Hey, good morning, Don. Hi there, Dave. How are you? Don, I'm well. This first article is really interesting. When it yeah. comes to land rights in British Columbia, how have First Nations fared in the past in these legal battles? Well, Dave, <laughs> they haven't fared very well. Um, it, uh, just to give you a little bit of history, in 2010, the uh, please bear with me here on these Indigenous names, the Kutunaha Nation shared vital cultural and spiritual knowledge with the BC province and the public in the form of what was then known as the Katmuk Declaration, which demonstrated the significance of the area known as Katmuk that included the proposed location of the new ski resort that they were going to build. Okay, mm -hmm. so here's this ski resort coming in, and uh, they were basically not at all uh, pleased about this. At the heart of the case was the question of whether Indigenous sacred spaces and practices could be afforded protection under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, needless to say, they lost the case. Um, so it, it, it went on to various other levels. In 2014, um, the Supreme uh, Court lasted two weeks and in April dismissed the nation's application, um, saying that it did not apply uh, to, uh, as I say, the religious uh, significance. So 
it, it has been very difficult for them. One of the things the Walrus does really well is bring in authors who are not just doing great journalism, but also doing some reporting and a little bit of opining. What is the author's opinion of the present legal status? Okay, very, very opinionated author, uh, Troy Sebastian. He is a journalist and an advocate, obviously, and he- I'd like to actually just read the quote. Mm -hmm. Indigenous people in court face austere indifference and lethal judgment. Whether it is a courtroom consideration over the rights of Indigenous people who uh, predate the constitutional roots of Canada by several millennia, or the perfunctory justice that incarcerates tens of thousands of Indigenous people each year, it makes little difference. Our rights do not matter. So uh, there's no... uh, There's no iffiness when it comes to uh, Mr. Sebastian. Mm. As I mentioned off the top in the introduction, there's a current case in front of the Supreme Court. What does this current case involve and what are the repercussions? Okay, this is a different nation. Uh, The new new Chatla uh, nation argued uh, that in this particular case, uh, they exclusively occupied the lands that they are fighting for in 1846 when the British asserted sovereignty over the area, and this fulfills the legal test for Aboriginal title. In its written argument, the province disagreed with the nation inter- nation's interpretation of the test, arguing that the existing law states that the history of ancestors to the modern day, to the modern day area, both before and after the date of sovereignty, uh, did not apply in this particular case. So, um, yeah, the, the, there's various nations; they're fighting various causes, and um, you know, it's. Um, it's a long and, 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 and troubling history and kind of sad, Dave. Mm. From indigenous land rights to labor rights, oftentimes the Starbucks coffee chain will bill itself as a progressive company, but when employees started unionizing, the company pushed back. So, Don, let's start here. What brought on the push to unionize? Yeah, this was quite surprising, Dave, because... Um, Sarah Broad, uh, a shift uh, supervisor with about four years' experience at Starbucks, said it basically all started with the early days of the pandemic. Uh, Broad says communication was very poor, tensions were high between the company and the store's 30 or so employees. When it came to COVID-19 precautions, we were told one thing, and then a week later we were told something else. We felt like we didn't know what was going on and we were being taken advantage of. Uh, Staff at that point was very burned out. They felt that they were risking their health for very low wages and lacked job security, particularly as hours were cut during that time. The usual routes for complaints, um, approaching the management or calling the ethics and compliance helpline were weren't yielding any results for these particular employees so they decided that uh, you a good time for union mm-hmm. so what is the potential starbucks union going to put on offer how is it going to differ well, unions typically are associated with bigger long-term careers, as we know, right? Auto Automakers, uh, public sector jobs, skill trades and whatnot. It's very seldom associated with, um, you know, kind of temporary uh, workers like Starbucks, right? Um, and... Uh, Th- those workers are, are, are actually at a, a huge disadvantage, right? Because um, the retail workers, uh, they they are treated, um, well, I shouldn't say this across the board, but some of them are treated fairly poorly. Yeah, no, generally, uh, it, that's a safe statement. Generally, uh, retail and fast food and food service workers are treated in- incredibly poorly by management. Yeah, exactly. Uh, due to the fact that they are uh, very transient, you know, and that, you know, they're in and out and whatnot, and the wages are... <laughs> pretty bad and uh, you know the servants industry has changed because let's face it it used to be a time when all of that the all of that retail sector was basically teenagers you know they were coming in uh, they were it was their first job they were in their early 20s they they didn't 
well, I guess they wanted higher wages. I mean, uh, uh, it would be fair to say that, but it, it was kind of like their first job, you know, so it wasn't a big deal. But that's changed entirely now. So now what they're finding is that there's uh, more older workers in the field. They're trying to actually carve out a life on, on some of these wages, right? Uh, and at least since the 1990s, the accommodation and food service in, uh, sector has been amongst the lowest unionization unionization rates in Canada mm-hmm. at just 4.9% in 2021. Uh, but that uh, obviously might be changing, you know, because because of the shift in the demographic with, with the workers. Yeah, going back to where this conversation started, Starbucks will oftentimes bill itself as a progressive company. And certainly in the, in the United States, they do offer some benefits and perks to their workers. Um, slightly competitive wages, some health insurance, uh, free tuition to several universities across the United States. So there are some things that they do, but what this really highlights is a company will be progressive when they want to be progressive on their terms. They don't want to be told how to be progressive by their workers, which isn't particularly progressive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dave. You know, it's all that it comes down to that saying when push comes to shove, right? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, uh, Don, thank you for this. We appreciate these uh, previews from Voices of the Walrus. It's always an excellent program. It's always an excellent conversation with you. Have yourself a great day. Okay, thanks, Steve. Bye-bye. That is Don Dickinson, content curator for Voices of the Walrus, which you can find weekends at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Tomorrow on the show, you'll find the news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta that kicks off in the first hour of the show. Then Michael McNeely stops by with a review of the documentary Fire of Love. All about volcanoes. Here's some volcano talk with Michael McNeely on a Friday. I enjoy that one. As you know, the show gets going at 9 a.m. Eastern time right here on AMI-tv or on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Don't forget, if you ever miss an episode or miss a segment, or if you want to revisit one of our excellent segments or share it with a friend, you can do that by searching for Now with Dave Brown on your favorite podcasting platform. Once you get there, don't forget to drop a five-star review, throw us a thumbs up, maybe even share it with a friend. That would be really cool. Costs you nothing and puts a big smile on my Face. Big thank you to everybody who made time to be on the show today. Leona Genovese, Ryan Chin, Nathan Clement, Stephen Scott, and you just heard from Don Dickinson. Until we hang out again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.